you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Having been in 1 Peter for the last two weeks, we return now to our series in Romans. Uh, I just want to stop and say um, how good it has been for uh, Pastor Richard and Pastor Doug to be walking us through this series on First Peter, elect exiles, uh, hearing uh, their um, competency to handle God's word and bring its truth to bear in our lives. I'm thankful for their service, and I'm sure that you are as well. Now we return to Romans, and when we were last here, we were at chapter eight, experiencing the climax of all of God's saving goodness towards his people in Christ. We saw that Romans 8 had been called, probably rightly, not to the denigration of the rest of God's word, but to the exaltation of the clarity of the, 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 the glories of the gospel, the best chapter in the Bible, the greatest chapter, the one that, that we can go to again and again and again and find a sure and certain hope of God's love for his people. And now we turn the page that we're and come to Romans 9. Where Paul has to explain that in the, in, in the midst of this glorious gospel truth about Christ and how he saves a people for himself, why has so many of his own people, of Christ's own people, rejected him as Savior? Why had so many of the Jews turned away and not experienced salvation, but rejected their own Messiah, Jesus? And in answering that question in this chapter, frankly, Paul is going to assault our pride. He is going to defy our expectations, and yet he is going to give us a massive vision of a gloriously sovereign God. So I encourage you to follow along as I read from God's Word this morning, beginning at verse 1 of Romans chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ." who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, and this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved. But Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he find fault still? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his mercy and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he has called not from the jews only but also from the gentiles as indeed he says in hosea those who are not my people i will call my people and her who is not beloved i will call beloved and in the very place where it was said to him you are not my people They will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading this morning. David Platt is probably right when he says this chapter is, quote, quite possibly the most convicting, confounding, confusing, pride-crushing words ever penned in Scripture, end quote. Some people, frankly, just don't like what Paul says here. Some ignore it because they feel like they cannot understand it. But I think as another pastor has said, the truth is probably this. It's not really difficult to understand. It's just difficult to accept. But let me give you a small glimpse into the future. Let me help you to understand when Paul puts this in the Bible, what effect it should have on our lives. Some see chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans as little more than an extraneous uh, excursus, a, a long rabbit trail that Paul takes in the letter. But they misunderstand the purpose of Romans, if that's what they believe. Remember, he is writing, we saw this all the way back in chapter 1. Paul is writing to a congregation made up of Jews and Gentiles who have professed their faith in Christ and are meant to be one body. But because of social and historical events, they are at odds with one another. They are not reflecting God's plan to make one new people out of the Jews and of all the Gentiles of the world. And therefore, Paul is writing reminding them of the gospel they believed and helping them to see this is why we must be unified as one people, Jews and Gentiles together. It is for the sake of God's glory among the nations, the proclamation of the gospel of Christ, that we must be one. So Paul is working hard to reconcile these Jews and Gentiles together, those of the old covenant who are now brought into the new covenant along with Gentile peoples. 
And at the end of chapter 9, 10, and 11, explaining God's work in the world, not just in Israel, but in all the nations, where does he end? When he stands back and considers from, from when God began with the promise to Adam and Eve on to the promise to Abraham and, and declared through Israel by Moses and the prophets leading up to the birth of Christ and now the proclamation, the proclamation of salvation in that name to all peoples, what effect does it have on Paul? At the end of chapter 11, he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's where Paul ends. Breathless, amazed worship at the depth of God's glory. So as much as a view of the nation of Israel is in view in these chapters, Israel is not the main issue. The main issue is the righteousness of God and His unfolding plan to bring salvation to the world. And at the end of seeing all of this, the ins and the outs of how God does this in ways that, that, that humble us and break our pride and confound our own wisdom but reveal the wisdom of God, Paul steps back and just offers praise. An adoration at God's glory. And friends, that's where we should end even today as well. As we work through the, what is arguably one of the most difficult chapters of the Bible, it should end with humble worship of God. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow or next week or next month, or maybe even next year as we perhaps struggle through to understand and believe and agree with Paul. But that's the direction that we should end when we're done. How does it begin? It begins by understanding Paul's heart. And here in verses 1 through 5, he reveals the problem of unbelief. The problem of unbelief. Whose unbelief? The unbelief of Israel. The unbelief of the Jewish people. And that problem is expressed first with a deep and passionate concern for their souls. Paul reveals a concern for their souls. It may seem odd that Paul feels the need to start off by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness to the Holy Spirit, as if somehow, oh, the rest of the time he might have been pulling our leg. But that's not the case. Rather, I think what Paul is trying to say is, listen, I'm not pandering to you. I'm not just paying lip service to you. I'm not just trying to say, okay, just be quiet, I understand, but, but your questions are not, not important. I think that's what he's trying to say. Because Paul has been called, even though he's a Jew, in fact, and in, in elsewhere, he gives his kind of Jewish bona fides. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was as good a Jewish boy as you could get. And yet what has God done is called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He always starts at the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath in a synagogue, but then he moves out from there, uh, going beyond and spending much more time with the people that were not his people according to the flesh. And so the question is, Paul, have you betrayed your kinsmen according to the flesh? Have you betrayed your own people, Israel? And Paul wants to say, no, 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 you don't understand. My heart breaks for them. My heart, I, I'm, not, I'm not just uh, spinning it here. I have a sorrow, an unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I myself were, could even be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I, I wish that, that, that if I could, I could give up my own salvation, that Israel itself might be saved. 
Paul is helping us to see that though when we become a Christian and priorities change, if you're living the way that you should, your closest friends are eventually going to change. Your true family, if your physical family is not believers, is going to change. But all of that doesn't obliterate your past. We don't just cut ties and leave all of our family and friends behind. No, what ends up happening if we're truly saved is now that the kind of uh, jolly, happy, even loving friendship we had takes on a whole new weight because we know Christ and salvation and they don't. And so suddenly our love for them grows deeper and more concentrated and we have a profound sorrow that they themselves have not trusted in Christ. And so our love for them is not to say, well, listen, they've got to decide for themselves. They know where I'm at. I'm just going to leave it to them and leave them in their beliefs. And, and maybe Christ is good for me, but not for them. Friends, that's not love. That's fear. That's fear of a loss of friendship. That's fear of a loss of reputation. That's fear of someone being mad at you. True love is sorrowful and anguishes in the deepest parts of our heart for loved ones and friends that do not believe in Christ. And it motivates us to tell them about him. You think about, you think about Paul, who was beaten, who was chased down from town to town and ridiculed and stoned almost to the point of death repeatedly by his own people, the Jews. And yet, what does he say? If I could, I would be accursed and cut off from Christ if they could be saved. That's gospel love. Only God can produce that. Only God can produce us to live as Jesus commanded that we would love our enemies and pray for them, which was what we see here in Paul. Does Paul reflect our attitude? Have we ever spent perhaps the night weeping for loved ones who are on their way to hell? If not, then perhaps we need to pray that God would pour out his love more and more into our hearts because this is the natural response. But notice, secondly, Paul lays out the problem of their unbelief by pointing out the confusion about their status. The confusion about their status before God. If we read the Old Testament, we understand the added weight to Paul's sorrow. He is burdened because it's not just, it's not just his people group. It's not just his family. It's not just his, his homies, so to speak. You know, it's not just like, oh, these are my buds. No, 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 no. They, they are Israelites, he says. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises of God. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the, those great men of faith. According to the flesh, belongs to them the Christ. Jesus was a Jew a unique spiritual heritage. God had committed himself to them. They verbally had committed themselves to be God's people. He revealed his glory to them through covenant and sacrifices in so many ways that the other nations did not have any access to. And yet, even when he brings the long-awaited Messiah, Israel rejects him. All the peoples in the world, Israel should have trusted in Christ to a person and they didn't and that leaves this huge question hanging god promised he would send the messiah and redeem his people and now they have rejected him has the promise failed has the word of god not come to fruition as he promised the salvation of christ 
through Israel, the first word that came down in Genesis 3, all the way through the prophets up until the last one, until God shows up again with announcements of angels to people having miraculous births at the beginning of the New Testament, did all of that just fall by the wayside? Now, if that question doesn't give shudders to you, then you do not understand the, 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 the weightiness of this question that hangs over Paul and over all the other believing Jews. Because if the promise of God to the Jews failed, then you here this morning have no hope of eternal salvation. Every word of God is suspect if any of them have failed. So what does Paul want to do? He wants to show the word of God has indeed not failed. Though it is surprising, it was actually for told. And so Paul wants to explain, wants to answer this problem first by showing God's purpose of election. That's the second thing that we see in verses 6 through 13, the purpose of election. Paul begins straight out with an answer in verse 6. Yes, many in Israel have not yet believed, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. That has not happened. That's Paul beliefs. That's what he believes, but how he has to prove it. And in many ways, the bulk of that proof is here in chapter 9, but in other ways, it extends on to the next three chapters, 9, 10, and 11. And what we might have expected him to say is something along the lines of, well, of course, you've got to understand people have free will. They make their own decisions. God can't be responsible for that. But in fact, he says just the opposite of that. Explaining the nature of salvation, Paul doesn't point to people and say, well, they have their choice. He points to God and says, he has his choice. God has the sovereign freedom to choose who will be his people and who he will leave aside not to be his people. That's the meaning of election. Or as your translation might have, uh, the word, uh, the purpose of his choosing or his choice, it's all the same thing. And Paul explains it by showing that even in Israel, the children of God are children apart from their ethnicity. Apart from their ethnicity. They are children apart from ethnicity. Listen, Paul says, remember your history of Israel. We know the word of God has not failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, what does that mean? It means that just because you were an Israelite by ethnic identity, it doesn't mean you were an Israelite by spiritual identity. We know even today that just because there are Christian parents, their children don't always believe. Saving grace does not run through our genes. It doesn't work that way. Even the covenant people of God in the Old Testament. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What do we see in chapter 4? Paul argues you are a children of Abraham regardless of your ethnicity, Jew or Gentile, if you have faith like Abraham, right? Do you remember that argument? It's about faith. But even in the life of Abraham himself, we see it to be true. How many sons did Abraham have? He had two. He had Ishmael and he had Isaac. And Paul reminds us what God said. Though you have two sons, sons, verse 7, it is through Isaac that your offspring shall be named. This means, Paul explains, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. God said to Sarah, I will return and you shall have a son. And I say, wait a minute, I know that story. Sarah was Abraham's wife. She's the one that had Isaac. It was Hagar, her servant, who sinfully conceived the child Ishmael with Abraham. He doesn't count. Really? It's a child of, physical child of Abraham. But here's the thing. 
Paul knows your objection is coming. Of course, the lineage would go through Isaac, people might say. But notice, Paul says, listen, okay, fine, I get that. I, I understand why you might think that that's, an, that, that that's a caveat, that's an out, that's a way around this argument. But it's not just children apart from ethnicity, it's also God's choice apart from achievement. We see that in verses 10 through 13. It is God's choice apart from achievement. Paul says, not just with Sarah and Abraham, but also with their kids, the next generation, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. We see God doing the same thing. So understand what Paul has done. You have Abraham with two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And he says, listen, only one was the child of promise. Only one was saved. And people say, yeah, but Ishmael doesn't count because Isaac came from, from the wife, Sarah. He says, okay, then let's think about Isaac. What happened with Isaac? He had two sons but he's the son of promise. That means, according to your logic, both of his sons should be saved. Both of them should be child of the promise. And Paul says, but we know that's not the way it worked. What does he say? When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. The opposite of what you expect. The older inheriting the promise of, of having salvation and being served by his younger brother in that culture. Nope, I'm going to flip it. Why? Because I want to show it's not based on anything in you. Nothing in you. You know, when you're going off to college and you choose a school to attend, or as we came to Michigan over 13 years ago and discovered, uh, you don't just get on the bus and go where it takes you. You get to pick any school as long as they have an opening. That was wild concept for us because that's not the way in Ohio. Of course, there's lots of bad things in Ohio, some of you are going to think, especially when it comes to football, but that's a different story. When you, when you pick, <laughs> it's the first time he's amen in years, no, season. Um, but when you pick a school, when you choose a school, when you elect to go there or send your kids there, there's reasons for that, right? You think it's going to be a good school. You think you're going to get a good education. You think it's going to be worth the time and the money to go there. Unless you're really desperate. When you choose someone to marry, there's good reasons for doing that. You're thinking, this person is going to make a good spouse. I find myself attracted to them, wanting to be with them. And they have character qualities, they have virtues that, that I think are desirable in a spouse. So I'm choosing, I, I'm hoping that they'll, that they'll accept, but I'm choosing to ask them at the very least to be my spouse. That's not how God saves people. God's choice of who to save is not based on what we do. Paul says, salvation is not based on human achievement. God chooses, God elects to save because he chooses to elect and save. That's it. It's as far as it goes. Not because you're a good person. And he proves it with Jacob and Esau. Twins struggling in the mother's womb. They're not born yet. They've done nothing good or bad. They've not exercised faith. Some people say, well, God sees who's going to believe and then elects them. No, 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 no. Babies aren't believing in the womb. That's not, that's not what's, how that works. They're growing together. They've not done anything good or bad. They're equal in every way. But God makes a decision. He chooses to set his saving affection on one and not the other. And it baffles our understanding because it's not what we would expect the firstborn. It's the younger of the two. God made a choice. That's his purpose and election. And if the fulfillment of God's word 
Paul is arguing was based on us and our varying degrees of faithfulness given moment to moment, day by day, the word would fail. But the word of God has not failed because it's not dependent upon us. It's not dependent on our choices and our good works. It is dependent on God and his sovereign grace, his election of a people to be part of that purpose. This is why on the last day, you know, the, the old evangelism question, you die and you're before God and he says, why should I let you into heaven? Or why should I let you into my kingdom? No one gets to say, well, I was a good person, wasn't I? I gave lots to charity. I helped the old ladies across the street. Come on. Uh, what, what, what are you thinking? In fact, there was just, I think it was, um, I think it was Bloomberg, the, the mayor of New York, who just recently said in a New York Times article, if there is a God, I am a shoe in for heaven for all the good things I've done. Now, regardless of what you think about Bloomberg, Let's just be honest. He's being honest. That's what he sincerely believes. And Paul says, listen, that, that's not the way it works. No, no one gets to heaven and says, oh yeah, God chose me and saved me because he saw that I was going to be a great asset to his kingdom. Most of us stink at being assets to the kingdom. M most of us get far more patience and mercy from God for our inability to get over ourselves and just obey we should never think prideful thoughts about somehow, oh, God, God's lucky to have me on his team. No. You're lucky that God picked you out of a sea of humanity on its way to hell and said, I want to put my love and affection on that person. Paul says it's not based on anything in us, but on God's choice. And what's the problem with that? We don't like it. I mean, we, we, we don't, we, we, I mean, we are driven in our culture that by our merits, we succeed or fail. That's the reason why, you're talking about school again, I absolutely hated team projects. Don't put me in a group. Because now it's not the grade, it's not based on what I do, it's based on what me and three other people do. And I don't trust them to save my life. I want the A. Give me four times the work. I don't care, I'll get the A. Don't leave it up to these other jokers. We have a sense of autonomy, of self-direction. And it bothers us that God says none of that matters before him when it comes to salvation. God chooses who will believe in Christ before we ever put faith in his promises. And we aren't unique in that discomfort. This is why having after, or rather after having used the doctrine of election to prove his point that the word of God has not failed, Paul must offer proof of God's righteousness in election. How is God just in doing that? That's what we see in verses 14 through 23. We see proof of God's righteousness. Paul knows the objection that's bubbling up in the minds of those who are reading these words, perhaps even you this morning. Well, what are we going to say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Or to put it in modern day terms, God, that doesn't sound fair. We hear so much about fairness today, don't we? Well, they got to pay their fair share. Really? Because it doesn't seem fair share they give you half of what they make? That doesn't seem very fair. Or everybody has got to be equal. Really? Everything's got to be equal? All right, well then, I want the, the health care plan that my senator has and that my taxes pay for. That's not going to happen, is it? We hear a lot about fairness, and we're tempted to think about that when it comes to God's election too. We, we, we think, wait a minute, God chooses 
at me, and then I respond in belief, but that doesn't seem fair because, because some people don't believe, and so how are we to understand this? And so to help us understand this, Paul reminds us that in choosing us, in electing us, God has shown us compassion that's undeserved. We, we, ha- we have received compassion that's undeserved. Is there injustice on God's part? Paul says, verse 14, by no means. So the one who says that God is unjust, he's not fair. Paul says, never. There's never injustice on God's part. How do we know? Paul says, think about what God said to Moses when he's on the mountain getting the law. Israel's already blown it big time. This is their second time around. And what does he say? He says, well, first of all, Moses wants to see God's glory. He says, I can't, you'll be dead. You're greased by the mountain. That's not going to happen. I'm going to let all my goodness pass by. And he declares who he is. He declares his name and his character. And part of that declaration is this. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You don't get to decide who I'm merciful to, who I'm compassionate to. I'm God. I get to do what I want. God and God alone decides on whom he will show mercy. This is why, verse 16, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. What is he saying? He is saying the same thing that we've said a hundred times in this church from this pulpit. Salvation is not about fairness. It can't be. It cannot be about justice. You think about this. No murderer who was caught with blood dripping from his hands, bodies at his feet, goes into a, a, law, a, a court of law and says, I demand justice! Because he knows that means a needle in his arm or electricity through his body. It's over if you want justice. What do they do? They plead insanity. They plead extenuating circumstances. They, they claim I was spoiled as a kid or I ate too many Twinkies. They will do anything they possibly can to offer some kind of mitigating defense that gets them off the hook. But here's the reality, friends. Sin has left every one of us with stained hands before God, and there is no defense. When we think about salvation, the forgiveness of sins, we dare not yell for fairness and justice because we are guilty. And if we want fairness, if we want justice from God and salvation, we will get hell every time. No exceptions. Zero. Paul's already said, there is none righteous. No, not one. So Paul says, injustice on God's part? No way. No way. He shows mercy. Mercy. That's not what we deserve. We deserve hell. But we get mercy. That's what salvation's about. That's what the doctrine of election's about. Some people still balk. So I still, I don't know, I don't like it. In fact, most of us, probably the first time we read this and we're trying to put our minds around it, we have the same response that Paul expects in verse 19. You will say to me then, well, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? In other words, how can God hold us responsible for our actions, particularly to believe in him when he's sovereign over all things? How can he find fault for not, in us for not believing? And we may want Paul to say something like this at this point. Hey, hey, you've misunderstood what I'm saying here. I don't mean that God chooses some individuals to be saved and not others. This is about election of whole peoples. He's just talking about Israel as a whole. It's not about individuals. Or, no, 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 we still choose God, and then he chooses us. We would be comfortable with those things. But that's not what he says. Instead, in verses 19 through 23, he shows us God is a creator with authority. God is a creator with authority. Here's the question. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? 
And do not miss the highly theological, deeply technical argument that Paul uses to answer that question. Are you ready? Verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That may not be what we want to hear, but that's what Paul says we need to hear. We don't ever have the right to put God in the dock. We don't ever have the right to put him on trial. We're the ones on trial. We're the ones under the microscope before him. Our thinking and our living must be checked against him. Why? Because we come from him. He is the creator and we are his creatures. And then the Bible is clear that humanity is made in God's image and has inherent worth. We are nowhere near as glorious and important as God is when it comes to the universe. There is a huge divide between God and us. So much so that Paul says it's like an artist who goes into his workshop and he finds a lump of clay. He doesn't say, now clay, what would you like to be? Would you like to be a bowl? Would you like to stay a lump? What does he do? Fire, paint, done. I'm the potter, that's the clay. What right does the lump of clay have to talk back to me and say, I don't want to be a bowl, I don't want to be a vase. There's no right there. And you say, well, we're people, we're not clay, but you understand this is the difference between humanity and God. On that level, yes, we are just clumps of clay in his hand. He is the creator and we are the creation. And if we don't understand that, it's why we don't worship God the way that we should. He doesn't owe us anything. He's already given us life and breath this day and showed us such mercy. Paul's already said that, that he, has, he has endured rebellion and sin and wickedness and millions, even billions of people thumbing their nose at God who has given them life and breath and they've, they've torn down trees and made little figures and bowed down to worship and they all deserve hell and God let them live 50, 60, 100 years. That's mercy, friends. Mercy. Nothing but mercy. We may want Paul to say something else, but it's not what he says. Will what is molded say to its maker, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? That's Paul's argument. And if we want something else, Scripture doesn't give it. It doesn't give us an easy out here. This is the hard truths of reality. Just yesterday, I was reading an absolutely terrifying article about a guy off the coast of Florida who was out scuba diving. He was not a nudge. He's been scuba diving since he was 12. He's a Navy veteran, a guy by the name of Christopher Lacoon. You can go and read about it later. And he see him and his buddy are off the boat where they've left their wives. And uh, actually, I think Christopher's wife and maybe the other guy's girlfriend, but either way. Uh, they're out scuba diving. They see this buoy out in the middle of nowhere. They think, well, what's that there for? And they go up to investigate, and there's some speculation about whether or not the buoy had a warning sign or whether it didn't. But while they go to scuba under and see what it's attached to, suddenly uh, the current picks up, and the next thing Chris knows, he's been sucked into some pipe. And he has no idea where he's going or what's going on. He's moving something like seven feet per second. The regulator almost pulls out of his mouth and he's having to hold the goggles and the regulator on and he just feels like he's in this washing machine just going who knows where. And in his mind, all he can think of is every movie he's ever seen where there's some big fan that's going to chop him to bits at the end. And it's pitch black. There's nothing. Now you think about how terrifying that is. It went on for over five minutes. I mean, that must have seemed like a thousand years to him. 
just having no idea what's going on. And at one point, at one point, he was just so distraught that he thought, I, I, I don't want to die this way. What if I just pull that regulator out and allow myself to drown? I mean, he was just in the midst of total and absolute despair. He cannot see anything. There's no light at all. And then he sees light. The proverbial light at the end of the tunnel. One tiny little pinprick of light. And it gave him hope. And as he rushed closer and closer, the light got bigger and bigger and bigger until finally he shoots out into the sea reservoir outside of a nuclear power plant where they've been pumping in seawater like they're supposed to to help cool the thing down. And he pops up and he looks around and he yells for help. And the guy says, well, how did you get in here? He says, I don't know, but I need to call my wife. Good husband. <laughs> Friends, he, here's the reality. The spiritual reality that parallels that story against the deep, unyielding darkness of sin is the glory of God shining in its mercy, giving salvation and making it shine all the brighter. Verse 22 says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Some of us are tempted to just complain about this world and about their culture and to say, oh, the whole thing's going to pot. Listen, friends, I don't disagree, but our response should not just be complaint. It should be able to say this, isn't it amazing that God is so patient, he continues to let these, who knows what, you want to call them, sinners live, but one day they might get saved. How patient is God and kind to tolerate our stupidity, our rebellion, our aggression against him? And so even, even Paul, he refers to Pharaoh. How, why would God let such a wicked man to prosper, mistreat his people, malign his name? The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. I, I allowed you to amass wealth and power and prestige through my servant Joseph so that one day when my people grew under your hand of tyranny and suffered in slavery, I might come and reveal my power by wiping out everything that represented your gods, your beliefs, your power in the known world, and gloriously save my people out of slavery. So that even now, some 6,000 years or whatever it is later, we are still declaring the glory of God because of the exodus against the bleakness and the darkness of sin, God's glory shines all the brighter. And so the, the, the point of election is not to put the sovereignty of God against the responsibility of man in some kind of philosophical war. It's meant to be a truth that magnifies the glorious mercy of God. Some, some people still struggle. Maybe you're still struggling with that this morning. How can God make some people who will only die in their sins and go to hell? He could save them and he chooses not to. That's not a bad question, but it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. And so Paul reminds us that we will all experience condemnation apart from love. Condemnation apart from love. We see that in verses 24 through 29. Listen, I know some people don't like the doctrine of election and they just flat out deny it. And they think that saves them from this dilemma that people are born 
and just, they're just going to go to hell. Why would God make people like that, they say? Well, let me tell you something. Denying the doctrine of election does not get you out of that problem. Let, let, let's just assume for a minute there is no such thing as a doctrine of election, okay? In other words, everything that I've just been preaching for the last who knows how long, done. It's not what Paul says, not in the Bible, okay? But here's what's still in the Bible, Isaiah 46. The Lord God says, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. In ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Now, we could spend lots of time meditating on that, but at the end of the day, here's the one big takeaway we should, we should get away from that. God is eternal and he knows everything. He knows the past, the present, the future, and all the multiple possibilities of what even could be. I love that phrase, the ancient times of things not yet done. That's a cool phrase. What's my point? On the edge of eternity, in Genesis chapter 0, when God is about to open his mouth, as it were, and speak into existence all of creation, time and space, matter and energy, he knows what the result's going to be. He knows I'm going to create something called humanity and give them a measure of my glory and they're going to rebel and not all of them will be saved. And what does he do? He creates anyway. So here's the thing. Whether or not you believe in election, you still have this problem. God creates people knowing they will never turn to him in faith. They will always love their sin more than they love him and they're going to die and go to hell. But the doctrine of election says this. It's worse than you think. Because apart from God's mercy, every last person ever born would die and go to hell. But God chooses to save. Only God's sovereign electing love ensures that people will be saved. No one will be saved if God the Father had not loved sinners and sent God the Son to suffer and bleed and die for sins, and if God the Spirit had not opened their eyes to see and believe that they might be saved. That's what we see in verses 24 through 29. Paul piles on quote after quote of quote of the Old Testament to make sure we understand he's not just pulling this out of his robes. He quotes from Hosea to show that even the Gentiles will be saved so that those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. In fact, God sets his love on them so much that they will be called the sons of the living God. These are people that have never known God. And he says, that's okay. You're mine. Now you will know me. And I'm going to love you so much, you will be my sons. Even more shocking Paul says, verse 29, just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us, Israel, offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Such was the sinfulness of even God's own people, Israel, who had all the things that Paul said were their blessings, the covenants, the law, the promises. Such was the depth of their sin. Unless God stepped in and showed mercy, unless God sent his loving affection upon them, they would have ended up just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Two cities reduced to ash with everyone in them because of their wickedness before God. In other words, no one is saved because of their good works, because of their wise decision to follow Christ, or because of anything else in them. 
Anyone and everyone is only saved from the closest, most godly Jew to the farthest, most pagan Gentile because God has mercy on them. He chooses to reach down into a sea of sinful humanity and pull them out and clean them up and say, in my son Christ, I have made you righteous and now you will be my son. So how do we respond to that? The last thing that we see in verses 30 through 33, we believe and rejoice in the promise of salvation. The promise of salvation. Coming off some Strong's words about God's sovereignty, Paul ends his argument by showing human responsibility. In Paul's mind, these two things do not cancel each other out. God is sovereign and man is still responsible for his actions. Specifically, he knows why so many in Israel failed to embrace Christ, but so many Gentiles haven't accepted him, or have rather accepted him. What he, sees, what he says, rather, is that the Jews did not embrace God's calling by faith. They did not understand that their calling was by faith. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it was based on works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Throughout their hard history of struggle with false gods and idolatry, Israel finally learned to treasure God's word and obey it, but then they fell into a different trap, believing their obedience to the law would save them. They tried to pursue the righteousness of God by their own righteousness. They treated salvation if it was based on their works. And because Christ came and told them, no, Your works aren't good enough. They're useless to make you right with God. Put your faith in me and the righteous deeds of my life and the atoning power of my death and resurrection will be yours and will win your salvation. What should have been the cornerstone of their life became the stumbling stone. They said, we can't believe that. We can't can't believe that. It's what what I got to do too. By God's grace, I was born a Jew. By my working, I will know his righteousness. And so Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am your righteousness. And they say, no, no, I can't believe that. And they turn away. But for all those who would believe, the majority of the Gentiles that Paul preached to who said, yes, this is such good news. We don't have to appease the gods. God has appeased himself. He sent Christ to atone for our sins, to satisfy his own wrath. They obtained a confident future. A confident future, verse 33. Paul says, as it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. When we look to Christ in faith for salvation, we need not fear what is to come. When we stand before God, guilty and deserving wrath, we won't be put to shame. For the righteousness of Christ himself will clothe us like a robe covering all of our sins. Some of you that have been here for a while know that one of my favorite books his C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And probably my favorite scene in that book is when the children from Earth are coming to Narnia and Susan is talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, talking about Aslan and how he's on the move. And, and she's like, who is this Aslan? Now keep in mind, she's talking, she's having a conversation with two talking beavers, right? So, you're, you know, she's like, is this, a, is this a man? What is this thing, you know? And Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the kind of, uh, don't, don't you know who is the kind of beast that he is? Aslan's a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan replies, oh, I, th- I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about being a lion. And then Mrs. Beaver, the wife, steps in. 
She says, if there's, anything, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, then they are braver than most or just silly. Well, Lucy, the little girl, says, then he isn't safe. Safe, says Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. In that story, Aslan represents God, specifically God in Christ. And what Lewis is trying to convey in a fantasy narrative for little kids and what adults try to struggle with is, is what Paul is showing by thorough argumentation and biblical logic, and that is this. God is not a tame lion. We cannot domesticate him. We cannot force him into our prideful sense and sensibilities of reality. But oh, how good he is. From apart from his mercy and grace, we'd all be left to die in the pit of hell justly for our sins. But God nevertheless loves sinners, and in his great mercy, he calls us to himself, and he redeems our life for the pit. And when we experience that, we come to wrestle through and understand the depth of our sin and the magnificence of God's grace. We, we say, God, in all these electing and choosing, why me? And I hope like Paul, one day we can understand he loved us because he loved us he shows mercy on whom he shows mercy we can cry out oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable are his judgments how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the lord or who is with his counselor who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever amen father may we know that may we learn that god may you humble us and help us to just throw ourselves with great joy and humility on your grace, not just for salvation, but for all of life. Father, as we are about to sing, may your mercy be the great theme and song of our life from now until we stand before you in radiant glory through your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.